Hi, this is Jennifer Grease, a listener from day one, and you're listening to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear. The silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Ashley. Hi, Candy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. For you guys who are tuning in to listen, it is actually January 1st for us. You probably won't hear this for a few weeks, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, happy 2023. We have a very interesting topic today, and I I like that we're doing this via Zoom because I'm going to try to also show a few pictures here and there as we go along for those people who choose to enjoy this on YouTube via listening to the podcast version. You might check that out. But anyway, it's good to actually get to see you, even though we're at a distance. Far away. Far far away. away. (laughs) But I'm going to start with a fun question. An actor who I think brings a smile to most everyone's faces when they think about him. He's He's been gone a while now, but Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Ashley, what are some of your favorite memories of Robin Williams? Well, I would say probably for my generation, it's the genie in mm-hmm. Al- Aladdin and mm-hmm. uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Everybody knew him in that. And Night at the Museum, he was a wonderful Teddy Roosevelt, but he was also a fantastic dramatic actor. I enjoyed him. Uh, I remember seeing Goodwill Hunting and he was wonderful in that and Dead Poet Society just he had a great dramatic range which a lot of comedians do right yeah which I think it's funny because we say that a lot of them do but then we're always surprised (laughs) (laughs) yes the two that I think come to my mind first you name both of them Aladdin Mm -hmm. I remember when I first saw Aladdin it's a cartoon I mean it's you know it's this animated thing and yet he ran away with that film yes he did I mean, the the number of impersonations and then the skill of the animators and being able to really show Robin Williams' expressions and gestures through this character. Isn't it, funny it how, isn't it funny how the cartoons always end up sort of looking like the people who are voicing them? Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's purposeful, right? Because mm-hmm. they watch them, they record them, and they use that as they're creating it, is my understanding. Yes. But it's still brilliant. Yes. I mean, the skill to do that. He was but, so yeah. manic. <laughs> and yes, and that's that's what I think. I think that's one of my first words that I think of when I think about Robin Williams. But but that's why Dead Poets Society really struck me. That was my mm-hmm. second movie that comes to mind because I remember being so emotionally touched by that film and just blown away by his performance. He was so endearing. You just loved him. You did. Another one that I remember that was really emotional for me was Patch Adams, where he played mm-hmm. the doctor. Yeah, Do you know I never saw it? You didn't. You should see. Well, yeah. I don't. I don't know if I can recommend it because there's a moment in it. It's just so so sad. But he was very good in that. Yeah, I've heard that. I've, I've heard that he had a lot of good response to that movie. Yeah. With all of those 
positive memories that come to mind for us, and I'm sure that they do and they did for so many other people, I think that probably the whole world was just as shocked as we both were, I'm guessing, when the news came out that he had passed. I thought I would share just this short little clip from a report that came out on NBC News back in 2014. People around this country, and for that matter, around the world, are reacting tonight to the terrible news of the death of Robin Williams. A statement from his wife confirming his death alludes to his battle with depression, and now we know why. The 63-year-old actor and comedian died of an apparent suicide. He was among the most beloved contemporary American entertainers, a product of the Juilliard School here in New York, a veteran of improv and stand-up comedy, who then won an Oscar for a serious movie role in Good Will Hunting. Most of us first knew him from television, starting with Mork and Mindy, and then on to films, to Good Morning Vietnam, The Dead Poets Society, Mrs. Doubtfire, and on and on. Tonight, as you can imagine, Hollywood is mourning a monumental loss. I can recall being absolutely dumbfounded, shocked. Yes, shocked. It just totally took me by surprise. I had no idea. You heard the reports about depression, but I had no idea that he had been struggling with anything related to mental health at that time. Mm -hmm. Did you? I mean, did it take you by surprise in the same way? Oh, yeah, definitely. I had no clue. I mean, why would we? He wouldn't have talked. He didn't talk about it. So we wouldn't have known. And right. Not that it was really our business, you know, but we just, you just feel like you, you see these people and you see them in the films and you feel like you know them. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, well, I didn't know, you, you mm-hmm. know, we have an ownership sort of of them, like a, a one-sided friendship. Exactly. And that's the thing. I think Robin Williams, for him, I think it was even more extreme that we felt connected to him and friends with him because he also did a lot of talk shows yeah. and interviews and he was always so personable there as well and manic, frenetic, like he mm-hmm. Just seemed like he was always on top of the world because yeah. he was just extreme in every way, you know, and he seemed extremely happy. I don't know if we talked about this in our Jurassic Park episode, but Steven Spielberg made Schindler's List and Jurassic Park, well, Jurassic Park first, and then he went on to Schindler's List. But he used to call Robin Williams while he was making Schindler's List to have him just do jokes for him so that he uh, wouldn't be so overcome with emotion. Yeah, so it wouldn't be such a dark time for him making Schindler's List. I don't think that came out then, but I um, love that story. I think he was making Aladdin at the same time. Not mm. possible, but I think that's what was what Robin was doing. So he'd have him do little bits as the genie to help cheer him up. Well, here's what's interesting, Ashley. You and I had talked about the fact that we would like to do an episode center around Robin Williams for a long time. Mm-hmm. But our theme this month is a bend in the road. And what took me by surprise again was when I started to research him and I was thinking, oh, it's just going to be a story of his life and his accomplishments and what a, you know, a legendary man he was, comedian and actor. But almost immediately, what I came across was the misconceptions that I had Mm -hmm. and that I'm assuming other people have not had cleared up for them as well. And it centers around this idea that his death was related to this dark depression and possibly a relapse into drugs or substance abuse, um, alcohol, that type of thing. Honestly, what came out after his death was that there is a whole other story to his life, something else he was dealing with that I think a lot of us never knew about. Mm -hmm. And so that 
that's going to be something that we go into in this episode. I do want to talk about his life and all his accomplishments, but then Mm -hmm. I want us to go on and share the part of his story that's not as well known, I don't think. Yeah. So to start at the beginning, Robin was actually an only child who was born to his parents on July 21st, 1951 in Chicago, Illinois. His dad was a man named Robert, and he worked as an executive for the Ford Motor Company. And his mom actually, at some point in her life, had worked as a model and an actress. So I guess there was, yeah, some show business in the family before he even came along. He was quoted as saying, for my mother, everything is wonderful and rosebuds. This is a 1991 interview, by the way. My father, on the other hand, was a little darker about the world. It sucks. Get used to it. (laughs) Dang. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Robin loved his mom. I mean, he loved them both, I'm sure. But he adored his mother, Laurie. And this article I was reading described her as being a, quote, Mississippi-born Southern Belle. And Mm. Robin himself said that she loved to party. (laughs) And so Robin loved to get his mom's attention. Again, Mm -hmm. in an interview, he said, the first laugh is always the one that gets you hooked. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's usually from a mother or a father. For me, it was my mother. I was always trying to make her laugh. Hmm. Another thing I noticed before is I want to say it's another Chicago connection, another Chicago, Illinois connection. Isn't that funny? That comes Mm -hmm. up for us a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, despite this good relationship with his parents, his childhood had some challenges. One article talked about this was such a little I thought a sad little scene to picture in my mind. It described that Robin had this entire floor of the family's mansion to himself, but he would often spend time alone with his massive collection of toy soldiers making up voices for the little soldiers. Oh, but mm-hmm. he lived in a mansion? I know. So they they were making some good money, probably yeah. dad in, with his executive oh. position for Ford. Oh, oh but, okay. Yeah. But Robin also said that he was raised primarily by his African American maid Susie. Hmm. And he also shared one other factor that made his childhood sound challenging. Reportedly, this is according to him, he was chubby as a child. And that was one factor that led to his getting bullied. Hmm. He said in an interview, quote, there were times when I was in tears and I didn't want to go back to school, but Hmm. I did. Hmm. But what I know it's sad, but what finally helped him build some self-confidence and start to feel better about where he was, you know, in his school was he joined the wrestling team in high school and that gave him some confidence. A friend of his longtime friend named David Steinberg, who was also a comic, commented, quote, it struck me as a lonely childhood. There's a kind of loneliness to all comedians because you have to be in your own mind all the time. Mm. But there was just a certain sort of solitude in him that I didn't see in a lot of people. Mm. That's an interesting point about the comedians having to be in their mind all the time. That's a good point. Yeah, they're having to continuously observe and kind of file away the observations for a stand-up routine later, I guess. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about that quote that came up when we were talking about Vincent Van Gogh, the idea that in some ways all artists are, are observing the world and a little lonely because yeah. they're in some ways on the outside kind of watching everything so carefully. Yeah, because if you're observing, you're not participating. Yeah. Well, when his dad retired from Ford in 1967, the family moved to Tiburon, California, which was a well-to-do town in the Bay Area. And that is where Robin finished high school. And then he went on to college also in California. And that is where he took an acting class and discovered that he really loved loved improv. Mm. So with his parents' support, he decided he was going to start a showbiz career, and he moved to New York in 1973 to enroll at Juilliard. And of course, I think this is something that everybody knows. A couple of his classmates there 
included Christopher Reeve and William Hurt. Oh, I and, didn't know that. I didn't even know that he went to Juilliard. Oh, really? No, oh, I didn't I, know I, that. Mm -mm. I, well, that's that's where he became such good friends with Christopher Reeve, and their friendship was strong throughout their entire lives. It Interesting. was yeah. And I, I think it's funny that he was in California and decided to start a show business career, so when, he went to the other coast and went to New York. <laughs> Ironically, Christopher Reeve commented that this is his quote: "Robin wasn't comfortable in New York. He was a Cal." California kid who wore karate clothes and a beret and was out of sync with people. Yeah. So yeah, New York wasn't really his style. No. And yeah, he ended up leaving Juilliard before he finished. Although he would later say in an interview, it was because of a woman. He wanted to go back to California to be with, I'm not sure who, but some lady. Some girl. But once he returned, he landed his first serious acting role. It was in an edgy play called The Lover. And apparently he was broke at this time. I guess his parents were not supporting him anymore because mm -hmm. there's a story of the director giving him $100 for his wardrobe. Wow. But on the positive side, he got a lot of positive feedback, a lot of critical reviews, not necessarily from the big people, but you know, it, it was a good start for him. Yeah, people enjoyed it. Right. And this is something that gave him some confidence as he was moving into his stand-up career in San Francisco, and, and he was doing a pretty good job. Now, he is quoted as saying, the woman I was living with had left me, and I had to do something to break my depression. That's what mm -hmm. he attributes to getting him started doing this stand-up, but he okay. was good at it. Okay. Yeah. So he moved to Los Angeles in 1977, and he actually landed two different series, but each one was quickly canceled. So it was an accomplishment, but it didn't really get him too far. And actually, I didn't look up the name of it, but one of those series was starring Richard Pryor. So, you oh. know, yeah, they they were apparently they had some potential and mm. just didn't just didn't pan out. But that same year, he was featured in a stand-up special hosted by David Steinberg, the comic that we've already referenced, on HBO, which was pretty new at that time. And that was a big deal. And it also, again, kind of fueled his fire as he continued to work on his comedy act. And he was working in clubs like the Comedy Store and the Improv. So he was moving along. And this is what took him to Mork and Mindy. Mork and Mindy. Man, talk about frenetic energy. Boy, he was just like a little firecracker on that show. So how did, did you watch the actual Mork and Mindy show? Or did you see him on Happy Days or both? Or how uh, did that go? No, I think I saw some of the episodes of Work and honestly, he was just too much for me. I just, I could not handle that much energy. It just wore me out. So, but I, I got the concept of what he was on that show. Yeah. Yeah. It just wasn't quite your style. No, no. Yeah. Well, it did originate with Happy Days. What oh, happened was, okay. yeah, Gary Marshall had an idea, which actually came to him from his son, that it would be fun to have an alien guest star on the show. And so this is 1978, Robin Williams auditions, and he gets the part. Supposedly, one of the things that kind of helped him to, to win the part was that he actually stood on his head during his meeting with the producer. So he, he got the role, and they said he just blew people away. There was mm -hmm. the frenetic energy part, but the other part that people loved about Mork was that he was playing this character who was an alien, but he had like this childlike innocence. Yeah. He was so sweet, yeah. so charming, no filter, and everybody just thought he was adorable. So that's what led into his being offered a series. And they talked about how, you know, he kind of had the trademark look, you know, we can picture him in his alien suit. But mm -hmm. when he wasn't in that, he was in the baggy pants and the rainbow suspenders. And they said that a huge part of the show was allowing him to improvise 
improvise. In fact, yes, yes. They said that the script sometimes would have sections that would just say, Robin does his thing. What? Can you imagine that kind of trust in an actor? That's a lot of trust. It is a lot of trust. (laughs) Well, it was an immediate hit. It debuted in the fall of 1978. And for its second season, Robin's salary had already jumped from 15,000 to 40,000 per episode. I take that now. I would take that now. I keep right? saying, I always say that about these shows. So I'm like, I take it now. Yeah, yeah. Pay me that much. But one of his friends commented he couldn't get enough. He loved it. He seemed really happy and filled with excitement about everything from the money to the acclaim to the opportunity. Sure. Yeah. And <laughs> and of course he's on a roll because as his series is taking off, obviously his stand-up routines are too. So mm-hmm. he is doing well in both areas. Now, I thought this was an interesting point. The this comic style. We've borrowed already said it's it was frenetic it was manic it didn't appeal to everybody it wasn't your thing and honestly sometimes it was a little too much for me too mm-hmm. but it's what made him stand out it's what made him unique in fact there were a few quotes from from different people who'd worked with him or friends of his talking about his genius so i thought i'd share a couple here's one from judd apatow he said it's not possible to be a robin williams ripoff he was doing something so unique that no one could even attempt their version of it right. he raised the bar for what it's possible to do and made an enormous amount of us want to be comedians. He looked like he was having so much fun. Right, right. And I wonder if you go back and think, so the late 70s is when he is coming out and you got to think of who were the other comedians at that time mm. and how different was it, which I can't, I can't answer that. I mean, we would have had, I don't, I don't know that Steve Martin was necessarily a comedian, but he's more straight laced and he's more dry humor or Richard Pryor or George right. Carlin who don't have that kind of energy that he does. So it would have been right. something totally new. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I, I'm like you, I don't know that much about mm-hmm. that 70s. era of comedians, but I would think it would be more traditional. Sure. Mm-hmm. So it, other people who talked about him included director Sean Levy, who was, I don't know if he directed all the nights at the museums, but he definitely directed the last one. I know that. Yeah. And he described Robin as having a quote, manic wildly creative, bottomless pit of ideas. And everybody just used words like genius and and talking about his incredible mind and how fast it worked. Like that was just something that everybody recognized was he was just so witty and smart and just it clicked so fast. And I think that's what impressed a lot of people. Now, some people would want to say that some of that was because of his substance abuse, but his girlfriend, the girlfriend he had at the time that he was doing Mork and Mindy and actually even before that, she went on record as saying, quote, drugs were not a part of those earliest days. If we had money for drugs, we would have bought furniture. But unfortunately, with the money and the fame, as he's building, you know, his Mork and Mindy career and his stand-up career, this is where he does start getting involved heavily with substances. In fact, there was a little anecdote told in a Rolling Stone article where Kid Rock was saying that he was just off the cuff talking to Robin one day, like, you know, hey, what's going on over there over at Mork and Mindy? And Robin quips, oh, mountains of cocaine. So he's being funny, but he's also, but there's truth. Mm -hmm. In fact, Robin later admitted in an interview, because he would talk about things. He Mm -hmm. He would joke, but he would also be vulnerable and and basically 
basically admit to struggling with different substances. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. one thing he talked about was that when he was making his top 10 comedy album called Reality, What a Concept back in 1979, that he actually went on a week long Coke binge. But his quote about why he did it was this. For me, it was like a sedative, a way of pulling back from people and from a world that I was afraid of. Hmm, and so, so he was taking it to calm down. Well, and so one of the points that I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about several times is he seemed so sure of himself, genius, so confident, putting himself out there, but he really struggled with some deep insecurity. I think that well, was a theme of his life was really yeah. just not feeling like he was quite good enough, always questioning things. So I, th- I think that was something that added stress to his life throughout his entire career. Hmm. And that tends to happen with performers. Not everybody of course, but you tend to, if you are a performer, you're looking for that validation that you don't really feel in your everyday life. And you're probably also a super reflective person Yeah. because, Mm -hmm. yeah. But a turning point actually for Robin came in March of 1982. I did not know about this, but I thought this was very interesting. So somehow he got word that John Belushi wanted to see him. So he had gone to the hotel room where John Belushi was staying, but he ended up leaving really quickly because in his words, I'm paraphrasing, but basically he said, John Belushi didn't seem up for a visit. And it was just a few hours later that he found out John Belushi had died. Oh, like so he, they weren't friends? They He was well, just going to meet him for the first time? No, no, no. It was not a first meeting. I don't know how close they were, but they'd met each other before. I, okay. I don't think this was like an initial encounter. Okay. Yeah. But the point is, this is the same night that he had yeah. gone to his house and then he's gone, you know, this yeah. comedian, this, yeah. this talent. And I'm a friend, even though, again, we don't know how close a friend he was. He's gone. And on top of that, Robin Williams was called in to testify at the grand jury later that year. Really? Now, yes, because it ended up being a murder case. What? A Why? Woman, a woman named Kathy Smith was the one who had injected John Belushi with this dose of drugs that night. It was kind of a mix of cocaine and heroin. Ooh. And he ends up dying from this. Mm -hmm. So it was incredibly traumatizing and serious. By the way, here's a little quote from Robin Williams to Rolling Stone at some point. He said, in the end, I was only there for five or 10 minutes. I saw him and split. He didn't want me there really. He obviously had other things he was doing. That's talking about his visit to John Belushi. But he was there, saw him that very night. So he could testify as to his condition, his state. Right. So he was called in. He had to testify. And it was a huge wake-up call. Then this took a lot of strength, I think. He decided he was going sober. He gave cold up turkey. everything cold turkey mm. and made it for like two decades. Wow. Yes. Yes. Now, one of the things that helped him was he became very involved with cycling. Oh. In fact, I know. I didn't know. There's so many things I did not know. <laughs> he said it was almost like a form of meditation for him. And it led him to form close friendships with a lot of people. One of those people was Lance Armstrong. Now, I think they had a falling out later, but for a time they were very close and he loved cycling so much that he actually started to purchase bikes. It became something he started to collect. In fact, by the time his death came in 2014, he had something like a hundred bicycles in his collection. Oh, wow. So it was cycling like long distance cycling. It wasn't stationary cycling. Oh, it was on the road. Okay. 
Okay. Yes. In fact, it was really sweet. I ended up watching a lot of different video clips and documentaries and reading a lot of different articles. And and I heard from so many friends and neighbors who, who gave sound bites talking about Robin. And some of his neighbors talked about how wonderful he was, how down to earth they'd see him with his bike or he'd stop on the street and he would speak to people. And he, you know, he was just like this just a friend you could talk to. But on the flip side, one of his other friends commented that cycling was perfect for him because, quote, he could ride through town and people would see him and say, hey, Robin. And he'd say, hey, and keep riding. And keep going. So mm-hmm. Yes, because it, and they, the, the quote goes on to basically, I'm paraphrasing now, it would allow him to still, to be friendly, but still have mm-hmm. privacy. And, and distance. So, yeah, yeah. Yes. This guy said it was a great way to handle celebrity. Mm-hmm. So back into his career. About the time that Mork and Minnie was coming to an end was when Robin was really trying to get his film career going, but it was a little bit of a bumpy start. Two of his first roles were The World According to Garp and Moscow on the Hudson. Mm. And both of those were really different, obviously, to go from, as we kept saying, kind of this, these, this manic character to mm-hmm. these dramatic roles. And he was good. In fact, Robin was really proud of Moscow on the Hudson. And he had even taken Russian lessons to try to do a better you know, job, a more authentic job in his role. But people who, the authors of the article speculated that maybe these were just too different for his audience. You know, his audiences were used to a Mork type right. personality or the the comic that they were seeing on TV shows and at stand up and they weren't ready for him to be dramatic. Mm-hmm. Sounds so, like he should have gone into comedy and then gradually went once he established himself in the in the movie so it's like this is a different medium see I'm doing the same thing and then he could go over to drama I don't know or maybe he thought well television is funny now in the movies I'm going to be serious that's just speculating right well whatever the case he he managed to hit that happy medium yeah with his next role, I think, and I think it kind of did what you were saying. It incorporated comedy while letting him also get some of that drama in there, some of that seriousness. And it was the movie Good Morning Vietnam. Really? That was the third one? This is the the third um, notable one. one. I gotcha. couldn't tell you if he had done some other little things here and there. I didn't look up his entire filmography. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. But they said that this was the perfect movie for him to really kind of break out because mm-hmm. he could be funny, but also sweet. Now, what's cool is they were a little worried about it because again, so far he has not proven himself to be a box office success. Mm -hmm. And this is a long time ago, you know, Vietnam was not that far Mm -hmm. in the past and it was still pretty touchy. So they were worried that this movie was not going to go over well with the audience. Mm -hmm. Now, a quote from director Barry Levinson. Here's what he said. At that time, he had never had a successful film and there were those that sort of said, he doesn't translate to the big screen. But of course, that turned out to not be true. The other thing that he said was that Robin, again, was insecure. In Mm. fact, at one point, well, Robin's concern was he performed in front of live audiences and he got that reaction from the audiences and he felt like he knew he was funny because he got the feedback. But in the film, he couldn't tell. And so so he was worried in this one scene in particular, he didn't think he was funny. He himself offered to pay to reshoot it. And Barry Levinson had 
had this quote where he said, I said, Robin, it's not something we have to worry about. Believe me, it's amazingly funny. Mm -hmm. And he went on to say that Robin was so surprised. And his response was, really? Mm -hmm. You think so? Mm -hmm. So it was very successful. It got Robin his first Oscar nomination for Best Actor. And it really helped his career. I would say so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, his personal life was starting to hit a big crisis because this is around the same time that he is separating and then then divorcing from his first wife, Valerie Velarde. Now, the two had met in San Francisco when she was a waitress, and that was back in 1978, kind of right before Mork and Mindy. And they had one son together named Zachary, who they called Zach. But reportedly, their marriage had a lot of troubles, and a lot of the sources say it's because Robin was seeing other women. So they separated. They were divorced in 1988. And in 1989, Robin married his second wife, who was Marcia Garces. Their first meeting was because she was the nanny for their son, Zach. Mm. But she had moved on to be his personal assistant by the time he was working on films like Good Morning Vietnam and Dead Poet Society. Mm -hmm. It was a little ugly and um, hurtful to Robin. He always said that he and his first wife, Valerie, had broken up by the time that he became involved with Marcia. Mm-hmm. But Marcia was pregnant when they got married and there was a lot of tabloid gossip that they'd had an affair and he he really hated that. Mm. Regardless, it sounds like Marcia was someone who really spoke to him. He felt very connected with her even after, we'll get to this later, but they will end up divorced after quite a long marriage. He felt very connected to her, I think, his whole life. Mm. He called her a gentle, great soul. And they did have two children together, Zelda and Cody. And after their marriage, she moved on. She wasn't just his personal assistant. They really became production partners. And he oh. she helped them produce movies like Patch Adams and Mrs. Doubtfire. So after she they was, divorced or during? No, 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 no. This is when they're married. They're, okay. they're, they end up married for something like, I can't recall, maybe 19 years. I mean, okay. it goes on. Yeah. Okay. All right. So just to summarize, between the late 80s and late 90s, Robin has been in a number of big movies that have been praised by the critics, very popular in the box office. We've had Dead Poet Society, Awakenings, The Fisher King, Mrs. Doubtfire. He was the voice of Genie and Aladdin. Some critics were complaining that he was focused too much on family movies, but audiences loved it. In fact, they gave an example in one article. The critics really did not respond well to Patch Adams, but it still brought in $135 million in 1998. I remember going to see it in the theater. Yeah. I mean, it was a big deal. And they said Mm -hmm. Robin was making as much as $20 million a movie at that point. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he has taken off. And just to throw this out there, so I won't forget, across the course of his career, he ended up nominated four times for an Academy Award, Good Morning Mm -hmm. Vietnam, The Dead Poet Society, The Fisher King. And then, of course, he's actually going to win in 1998 for Good Will Hunting. And and he had a lot of other awards and nominations too, Mm -hmm. Golden Globes and that type of thing. But I just kind of focused here on the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. So before we go on, how about I pause for a minute and show a few pictures? Would that be okay? Sure. I'm always in favor of pictures. So just to take a moment to kind of go through a few pictures. Here's Robin when he was young. I don't have the exact year, but I think he was probably a teenager here. Yeah, it looks like a high school graduation picture. It does, doesn't it? And then, of course, Mork and Mindy with Sam Dauber. (laughs) 
And, and there he is in his famous alien suit. His hair's cute look, there. Can, it does look cute. And look at the innocence. Like, mm-hmm. I, it's a little blurry. It's blown up on my monitor here. But you can see it in his eyes. He mm-hmm. just had that sweet, innocent look. Ah, uh, here we go. Yeah. Oh, Captain, uh, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Yes. And as the genie in Aladdin, here we look are. Look how young those two boys are. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yes. This is Doubtfire. Here he is with Lance Armstrong during the phase when they were such close friends. And That's they would so interesting. Together. I never knew he cycled. Isn't that funny? And it, I mean, it was such a huge part of his life. I didn't know it either. I think this was during some of his stand-up comedy. That's a good photo. I don't know which child oh. that is, but it might be Zelda. That it looks, looks like, like a little girl. It yes, looks like a bow. It looks like a cute little calf there. And we'll go ahead and stop there. Oh. You know what? Before we do, why don't we take a short break? Sure. Okay, we are back. So there were so many interesting insights that came from Robin's friends. So I wanted to throw one in here because to me, this just showed me a little side of him that I hadn't known about before. Mm-hmm. But they talked about the fact that Robin almost, first of all, needed to work. This one friend said it was almost painful for Robin to not be working because when he was working, he was in a zone, especially when he was doing comedy. They said it was almost like he was channeling. Mm. And I thought that was interesting because it made me think of athletes and how when they're in their races or when they're Mm -hmm. in their sport, they have that kind of runner's high. Mm -hmm. And I could almost see that in Robin once I heard this quote. The second thing that someone shared was that they felt like Robin needed an audience. He needed feedback. He needed response. Mm -hmm. He had to be working. And if he was working, that would fill that need. Mm -hmm. But if, if he wasn't getting it through his work, they said that sometimes if he's just on a street corner or if he was just in a room on a break, he would have to work the room or he would have to try to like get this person over here to laugh because it was just like he was driven. It's sort of like he replaced, it's like he replaced his substance abuse for this. Like this is where he now got his highs. You know? Maybe, maybe. I had a quote from one of his friends. That person literally said, this was more than just a guy being funny. It's what he needs to do. If mm-hmm. he's not doing it, he gets uncomfortable. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Moving on with his career, it was around the early 2000s when Robin really started to try to stretch himself as an actor. He did movies like One Hour Photo, where he was a disturbed photo yeah, developer. That was really, I didn't see that, but I looked look creepy. Yeah. And then then I, I didn't see this, but he played a serial killer in Insomnia alongside Al Pacino. Mm. And then I didn't see this either. They said he was a depraved children's TV star in the sinister comedy Death to Smoochie. I didn't see that either. Well, and a lot of people apparently didn't because they said these were pretty serious and dark and it was a little stressful to him because, mm-hmm. you know, here his movies from a decade earlier had just been box office successes and he was not getting the same kind of response to these films. So yeah. it was a little concerning because remember we said he was already a little insecure about his his performances anyway. Right. So the fact that these movies weren't being really successful, it bothered him. Yeah. And then when he was filming a dark indie comedy called The Big White in Alaska in 2003 is when he suffered a relapse. He admitted in an interview to Parade magazine that he slipped into a store one day, bought a small bottle of Jack Daniels and drank it as soon as he walked out of the store and then 
quote, within a week, I was buying so many bottles. I sounded like a wind chime walking down the street. Mm, and that's he, big. That's a big relapse. But it sounds like he did all these movies. He was trying to stretch himself and it just wasn't what people wanted to see him as. So it just triggered it that insecurity in him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and his drinking became so bad that he, I think it was kind of a climactic moment as he got drunk during a Thanksgiving dinner. And then mm. his family ended up having to come and intervene with him at some point. And in 2006, he entered an Oregon rehab facility. Mm. And then it was not long after that, that it led to the end of his marriage with Marsha. And of course, I was going to ask that. Yeah. Some people speculate that it was the relapse into substance abuse that really, you know, played into that. Mm -hmm. So Marsha filed for divorce in 2008, citing irreconcilable differences, Mm -hmm. but they weren't officially divorced until 2010. Mm -hmm. And it was also around this time that Robin started to have some serious health problems. So he was on a stand-up tour in 2009. It was called Weapons of Self-Destruction, and he started experiencing shortness of breath. Mm. So they took him to a Miami hospital, and then he was flown after that to a Cleveland clinic. And while he was there, he underwent three and a half hours of surgery to replace his aortic valve and to fix an irregular heartbeat. Yeah. I mean, it was serious. By this time, he had a new girlfriend. Her name was Susan Schneider. And so she helped nurse him back to health. Now, Mm -hmm. we should talk about Susan because she's going to come into play quite a bit here soon. Mm -hmm. Susan was a graphic designer and an artist that Robin had run into at an Apple store. One source said late 2008, another source said early 2009. So it's somewhere around in there. And it was, this is from her herself in one of the documentaries. She, she said that he was wearing these camouflage pants. So, you know, her words to him, she recognized who he was and she wanted to say something. So she said, Mm -hmm. how's that camouflage working? And he looked at her, of course, he's always really quick. He says, says, pretty good because you noticed. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. So they connected. And one of the things that, in this big conversation, apparently they talked about the fact that they had both struggled with substance abuse. And she told him she was in a 12 step program and where she liked to attend. And she shared that at the next meeting, she looked around for him thinking, I told him I'd be here. If he's interested, he would come and, you know, try to try to talk to me again. And she didn't think he had come. And then she looks up a little later and there he was. And, And that was it. Robin turned 60 in 2011 and they were married about three months after that. And by the way, Susan was younger. She was 14 years younger than Robin. And she had been married before and had, I think she had two kids herself, although don't hold me to that. Okay. But friends said how happy Robin seemed in his relationship with Susan. But at the same time, he did have some big concerns in his life. This came up across several sources. Despite being so happy in his new marriage and his new relationship, people talked about the fact that he seemed to feel guilty about his breakup with his second wife, Marsha, because feeling like he'd broken up the family, that he wasn't seeing his kids as much. It was something that really bothered him. And also at a time when his career is actually slowing down quite a bit, he really needed money. He had two ex-wives, he's got three kids and a new spouse that he wanted to, you know, support, treat to a a comfortable home. And so a quote from Robin himself, there are bills to pay. My life is downsized in a good way. I'm selling the ranch up in Napa. I just can't
can't afford it anymore. Mm-hmm. He he goes on to say he hadn't lost all his money, but he said, quote, lost enough, divorce is expensive. It is. Now, people have made a lot of his comments there. A lot of people took those references and tried to connect it to, okay, this is one of the reasons why Robin became so depressed. This is what led to the end of his life. You know, he he was really struggling and, and he, he was poor and he had to pay money to his ex-wives and blah, blah, blah. Maybe. But on the flip side, his co-manager, also named David Steinberg, not to be confused with the friend we've referenced a few times, but he told Rolling Stone magazine in an article that they wrote, quote, when someone would ask Robin why he was taking a job, he would make light of himself. He was an everyman and that's why everyone loved him. He made that offhanded remark and it was printed and we all felt badly that people would pick up on that and dog him with it. Mm. So his, his take on it is Robin loved to work. That's why he kept taking, he was taking a lot of jobs and, mm-hmm. you know, even low budget things at this time. Mm-hmm. And his point is Robin loves to work and he was being funny about his money problems. Yeah. Don't make more of it than it is. The, so. I didn't. When you said it, when you first said it, I thought he was just making light of something. He's making light of a serious situation, but just, you know, I know it's serious, but eh, this is the, this is the facts. And it's what he always did. Like he yeah. would make jokes about any of the issues he'd ever dealt with in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So back to the point though, he was taking a lot of jobs that were more low budgets, low budget films. And then he accepted a role in a TV show called The Crazy Ones, which was a CBS comedy set to debut in 2013, developed by David E. Kelly. Hmm. And it was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal because it was the first time he would have taken a TV role since Mork and Mindy. Yeah, I don't even remember this one. Did it go, did it air? It, it did air, but it didn't do so well. Oh, yeah. Okay. But the premise was he was supposed to be this ad man named Simon Roberts, who was, you know, like, like Robin himself, kind of this extravagant, big personality who a guy who was a co-founder of a fast paced Chicago advertising agency that he runs with his very straight laced daughter played by Sarah Michelle Geller. Oh, I know. I had no idea. Also, he's back in Chicago. (laughs) Yep. So a Vanity Fair article talking about Robin's last days shared that the response to the show was not good. And they felt like a problem with it was what we had said before you know, people who had seen Robin and Mork and Mindy and knew him from a lot of his comedies, they knew that he did really well in front of a live audience. And mm-hmm. this was a single camera format. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. just didn't think it was a great fit for this role where Robin was kind of being that frenetic yeah. man over the top personality. Yeah. You know what he yeah. needed? He needed like the Carol Burnett show. He needed the Robin Williams show where he could do sketch comedy in yes. front of a live audience. And I don't know if he sang or not, but do some kind of dance, sing and dance and like the old Andy Williams shows all that stuff. That sounds like what he, instead of this show, what he should have done. Yeah. But what do I know? Would have done well with something like that. Well, his wife, Susan shared that this was also a time when he started struggling with his lines and he was insecure about his performance. He was insecure about the show. Are people going to like it? Am I doing a good job? All that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was stressful because he was also filming that third movie, the third installment of night at the museum Mm -hmm. at the same time. So there was some, yeah. Yeah. Well, the first, first episode of The Crazy Ones was watched by 15.5 million people. Not too bad. But within a month, nearly half the audience had dropped off and every week it was getting worse. So mm-hmm. that's now stressing him out more. Mm-hmm. And something else that they pointed out that was a challenge was while he was making The Crazy Ones, he was living by himself in Los Angeles in this very modest rental apartment. Now, not trying to like, there's no judgment here, just kind of stating facts that he was having to adjust to a new kind of marriage 
married life as well. Supposedly, his ex-wife, Marsha, you know, she was very involved with his life because she had worked with him so much. Right. She had been his personal assistant. And so she would organize dinners for him and she would handle a lot of things for him. Whereas his new wife, Susan, was very independent, had her own career. They haven't mm -hmm. been married very long. She has, you know, I think her kids are pretty, they're grown. But at the same time, she's not taking care of everything for him. Mm -hmm. So so he's kind of independent, off by himself, maybe a little lonely. And other things start coming to the surface. That, but I don't think they noticed them right away. I think it was in, in retrospect that they started to put some of these things together. But Susan mentioned that one of the things that she thought might have been the very beginning of, quote, the beginning of a cascade of symptoms mm -hmm. was when in 2012, she noticed that he started to pull back a little bit at this situation with the Throckmorton Theater in California. They had this, it was kind of a comedy place. They had an open mic night every week at the theater. And Robin, the, this just thrilled everybody. It was very kind of intimate. And Robin would go all the time. And he had a standing invitation to just jump on stage and join in. And wow. he would do it. I know. Can you imagine being in that audience? <laughs> Yeah. He did it all the time. Audiences would go wild. They adored him. They loved it. And again, around 2012, he started to, you know, I don't want to go up there or I don't know if I want to go at all tonight. You know, he mm -hmm. started pulling back some. And again, she didn't really get it at first, but that was kind of the first sign. And then starting in October of 2013, he really began to be hit by just a number of physical problems, some more severe than others. And some of them would fluctuate, like they would be okay for a while and then it would get severe. But he was dealing with everything from stomach cramps to indigestion, constipation, oh. some trouble with his eyesight, trouble Ooh. urinating, trouble sleeping. He had had some tremors that happened every now and then. Now the tremors in the left arm were back. And on top of that, they said he's had some symptoms of cogwheel rigidity. Didn't know what, what that? that was. Apparently it's where your limb will suddenly, with no explanation, just stop at certain fixed points when you're moving and it just kind of like goes rigid and you just kind of almost I think freeze or stick in that spot oh yeah his voice lost some of its energy his posture became more stooped and sometimes he would almost kind of stop and freeze where he was so there was a lot going on and on top of that he was having a lot of anxiety like it like well, yes was, my gosh because he would be yeah. like why is this happening I don't understand exactly and uh, now he's having anxiety about other things as well. Mm -hmm. But that is a huge thing is he has no idea what's happening to him, but it's serious and it's super concerning. And as you said before, I think, I think you mentioned this, he didn't tell people what was really happening. Now, one thing I noticed in the documentary and in all the articles, oh my gosh, he was so great with his friends. Robin was so vulnerable and he would talk to his friends. Different friends would say if he was upset about something, maybe, you know, he, his breakup or whatever, he would cry with them. Like mm. he was just such a warm person who would relate to you, but he wasn't telling everybody about this. This is something that he was holding back on. In fact, Billy Crystal, one of Robin's friends yeah. that we all know, he was quoted as in a magazine as talking about Robin and how he was struggling. And he said, quote, he wasn't feeling well, but he didn't let on to me all that was going on. As he would say to me, I'm a little crispy. I didn't know what was happening, except he wasn't happy. And I think that's where a lot of the friends were. They're like, are you okay? But they don't know what's going on. So then his show gets canceled and that's 
concerning. That's a huge Even- blow. That's a huge blow going from yeah. an Oscar winner to your show gets canceled. And on top of that, they had brought in Pam Dauber, like it's mm-hmm. kind of this last ditch effort. Like, oh, this is going to get us a lot of ratings and get mm-hmm. people to watch. And it and it still didn't right. work. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. Robin took it very hard. And this was super sweet. I thought one of his biggest concerns was that a lot of people were going to be put out of a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to pause for a second because I don't, I haven't said this clearly enough yet. And I want this to come out very clearly. Robin was about people. He was very, very empathetic and caring. One of the things that had come out somewhere in the articles was in 1995, going back, I'm jumping back now. That was when his dear friend, Christopher Reeve had his accident. Mm -hmm. And Christopher talked about Robin being one of the first people who was there to see him, checking on him, trying to make sure that he was okay. And so many friends, so many friends in the articles and documentaries, different sources would talk about Robin saying, I love you or giving them hugs or calling to check on them because, you know, he was concerned they weren't okay or that he knew they were going through something. Mm -hmm. Neighbors would be on these documentary or in interviews talking about him speaking to them, being so down to earth, being out walking the dog and talking to them. His neighbors were great friends with him. Mm -hmm. He supported causes like homelessness. He worked for the USO. And after his death, someone in his family discovered inside his 12-step book, he had written this little note that said his goal was he wanted, I think it was written this way, I want to help people be less afraid. Hmm. So he was caring. He was about people. And I wanted to make sure I got that in there. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move back to the timeline now. It's to me, while you're saying that, uh, again, my observation is I can really tell that only child, you know, wanting that family, creating that family. And it sounds like he adored his parents, but didn't Mm -hmm. quite feel that love from the parents. So he's trying to give that love to everybody else that he maybe didn't feel. Again, not blaming the parents or anything, but just that sounds like a little emptiness in him that he wanted to fill. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a good inference. Well, moving back to the timeline, not long after his TV show's cancellation, Robin had to go to Vancouver to finish filming his scenes for Night at the Museum, Mm -hmm. Secret of the Tomb. He had already filmed some of his scenes the previous winter in London, and now he had to do like the last set of them. Okay. Now, by the time he reached Vancouver, his weight loss was severe. He had motor impairments that you couldn't hide. Everything was kind of getting very visible. Mm -hmm. He was also having a really hard time remembering his lines. In fact, Sean Levy, again, the movie's director, shared on the documentary that it was really clear to everybody that Robin was struggling. Like, not only was he having trouble with specific lines, Sean commented that it was almost as though he sometimes couldn't put the lines with the action of the scene, like make the Mm. connections. Mm. And Sean remembered Robin, like Robin would talk to people individually and open up. And he remembered Robin saying to him, I'm not me anymore. Mm. And his makeup artist, a woman named Sherry Minns, had a quote where she said he wasn't in good shape at all. He was sobbing in my arms at the end of every day. It was horrible, horrible, but I just didn't know. Now, under the supervision of his doctor, he is now taking different antipsychotic medications. 
medications, which seem to sometimes help some of the symptoms, but make others oh, worse. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not help, time, and it's not helping his emotions either. No, no. And by the time he came home after filming his scenes of Night at the Museum, it was bad. His wife said he was quote like a 747 airplane coming in with no landing gear. <sighs> so he is now experiencing severe memory, movement, personality, reasoning, sleep, and mood changes. He had trouble getting out of the bed when he first came back. Trouble emotionally getting out of bed or trouble physically getting out of bed? Emotionally. Gotcha. Yeah, emotionally. he's He is just struggling so badly that they started to use the phrase, Robin's not feeling well. Mm. And that became almost their new normal. Mm-hmm. They started staying home a lot. He's just kind of separating himself from a lot of what's going on around him. His wife said, quote, Robin was losing his mind and he was aware of it. Mm. And, mm. and he would tell her that he wanted a reboot for his brain. Things were getting worse for him. Like on top of everything else we've described, which is certainly bad enough, he was dealing with paranoia. That could be side effects from those antipsychotics though. Well, it could, but we're going to find out it actually was something else. Okay. Yeah. He would deal with paranoia. Uh, We'll find out later that he had delusions. Susan said he never told her this, but she now after the fact strongly suspects he was having hallucinations. Mm. But it would end up being that, you know, of course, neither of them know what's going on, but all of a sudden there would be kind of an obsession and she might be up till 3.30 in the morning trying to talk him out of something. You know, for example, one night he became convinced that one of his friends was going to die that night and Mm. not make it through the night. He wanted to call. Well, the friend was already asleep, they speculate. So the friend's not answering. Well, now he wants to drive over there and she's like, you know, convincing him that your friend is okay. Your friend Mm -hmm. is okay. Mm -hmm. And this would be happening all the time, you know? So in May of 2014, Robin was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which if you're not familiar, this is the definition they gave when I looked it up, a degenerative disorder that attacks the central nervous system, impairing motor functions and cognition, eventually leading to death. That does sound like it matches a little bit from what you're explaining. Mm -hmm. And of course, very concerning to him because Mm -hmm. one of his lifelong fears was to lose his sharpness. Mobility. Yes. Well, mobility and his cognitive strength, his quickness, you know, it was so both of those things, but it just kept getting worse. And he was also dealing with a lot of isolation and loneliness. Now, remember, we've already talked about how he's staying home. He's not going to open mic night. He's being evasive with his friends and not telling them everything that's going on. Well, another thing is he wanted to be around his children, but he was reportedly feeling really guilty about leaving their mother. And according to his son, Zach, this is a quote from Zach. He was firm in his conviction that he was letting us down. And that was sad because we all loved him so much and just wanted him to be happy. Mm. So again, he was kind of, in that case, kind of torturing himself with these feelings that weren't necessarily warranted from the part of his kids or his family. So at home, Susan saw his condition to continue to worsen when they would try to sleep at night. Robin would thrash around the bed so much. He was not sleeping. They actually said it can get to be a little dangerous for your partner, you know, if, if somebody's really dealing with this and they're thrashing so much. So at some point, the doctors recommended that they sleep in separate beds 
woods, which this is where Robin was in his mindset. He was struggling so much that Susan said the first night when they'd gone to their separate rooms, he kind of came down the hall towards her and said, does this mean we're separated? Mm. And she had to reassure him. And then she said a little while later, he recognized, he, you know, it kind of came to him and he remembered, oh, no, 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 I get it. I get it. But it, but he was just struggling cognitively with, mm-hmm. with different realizations. Mm-hmm. Robin was trying different treatments to try to, to deal with this. He continued to see a therapist. He worked out with a physical trainer. He would ride his bike. He found a specialist at Stanford University who taught him self-hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susan and Robin would meditate together. They, they focused, they continued to focus on the 12-step program, but nothing was really making a huge difference. In June, Robin checked himself into the Dan Anderson Renewal Center in Center City, Minnesota, which was an, an addiction treatment facility like the one that he had gone to back in 2006. Mm-hmm. And the article speculates this was just another strategy they were trying. Just to try. Yeah, yeah, just to try it. It wasn't that he was dealing with addiction. It was just maybe this will help because yeah. he'll be in this place where people are there to support him. He can meditate. He can do yoga, you know, all these different things. Maybe it'll help. Yeah. Now, other friends were critical of that because they were saying that he had no reason to be going to a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center when he's dealing with something that's totally physical, this physical right. condition. So that was something that took took a little criticism, I think. Well, Plus, it sounds like he's just trying to find coping mechanisms too. And maybe he thought that if he went there, they would help him cope a little bit. Maybe. I did not see this in print. This is just me speculating, but I wonder if his friends who were criticizing it did so from the fact of how it would get out to the media mm, and how sure. it might look because, you know, like he was not there for drugs or right. for substance abuse. Yeah. Right. And he, what can he say? He can't say, mm-hmm. he doesn't want to say the truth. So yeah, I can, I can understand their point of view. Yeah. Well, different friends mentioned that from their perspective, he continued to decline and they could see it and people were really concerned, but he wasn't telling them what was going on. One friend commented how not long before he died, this friend was saying goodbye to him and Robin told him goodbye three times that night. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, he just kept saying it to him. So on the night of August 10th, which was a Sunday, Robin and Susan were home in their house. According to Susan, this is a quote, as we always did, we said to each other, good night, my love. And then they would talk together in mm-hmm. one bed and then they would separate when it was time to sleep. And she said that she saw him go off into the office and get his iPad. And she thought that was a good sign because mm-hmm. it had been months since he'd really paid much attention to reading or to watching TV, anything like that. So she said, quote, he seemed like he was doing better, like he was on the path of something. I'm thinking, okay, stuff is working. The medication, he's getting sleep. So she felt this was positive. She saw him leave. He They went to sleep in their separate rooms. And the next morning when she didn't see him, she thought he was sleeping in. And then she was really excited about that because he had been having a terrible time getting any sleep. And that's bad. Getting sleep is important. Right. So about mid-morning, she left to run some errands and his personal assistant was not getting a response from him. And this was concerning. And so this personal assistant who happened to be a woman, I think her name was Rebecca. She had tried different things when she couldn't get hold of him. I think she'd even slipped a note under his bedroom door and so it was locked his bedroom door is locked yes she knocked on it she tried different things and finally she ended up ultimately picking she I think she texted Susan and got permission but she picked the lock with a paper clip and Mm. opened the door and Mm. she's the one who found him So according to investigators from the sheriff's office who reported the preliminary details about Robin's death at a press conference, I I watched this little news clip actually. The assistant found Robin in a seated position in his room with a belt around his neck. Mm. 
the police confirmed that he died from asphyxia due to hanging. He had hung himself with belts. And they shared that he also had some superficial cuts on his left wrist and that there was a pocket knife nearby. Mm. Robin was only 63. It's so sad. Yeah. Very, very sad. As we started at the top of the episode saying almost everybody immediately assumed that he died related to depression or something related to the fact that he'd been battling mental health issues and addiction all his life. So it had to do something with one or the other is what people assumed. We heard it in that little news report that Mm -hmm. that we listened to, but that was not the case. And that's the part, you know, when we think about that bend in the road, Mm -hmm. we jump to a conclusion and things were not the way that they appeared. So so here's kind of the rest of the story. It was not until his autopsy that they found out the truth of what happened to Robin. And I, I'm just going to say this really quickly. By the way, a lot of this next part is really going to focus in on Susan and her discovery of what was wrong mm-hmm. and then what she's done about it since then. Mm-hmm. But I should say that the family and Susan have had some conflict. There was actually a bitter legal battle where they were fighting over what happened with some of Robin's things and just different issues. And so I, I'm focusing a lot on her perspective, but I, I just want to share acknowledge. that, yeah, acknowledge that there, there are some other dynamics and I'm not commenting on any of that stuff at all. I'm simply talking about this one aspect. Okay. So what happened was in October of 2014 was when they finally heard the autopsy results. And that is when they learned that Robin had Lewy body dementia, which is a neurological condition. It presents itself very closely to the way Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease looks. So it is very often misdiagnosed. And in fact, they said that Lewy body proteins can't be tested like Alzheimer proteins. So many times it's not until after someone's death when an and if the family requests an autopsy, that they will actually find out the truth that this mm. person had. They, well, I'm going to sometimes call it LBD for short. Okay. Lewy body dementia. Okay. okay. Robin's case was severe. Mm. The doctors that Susan met with after Robin's diagnosis, this is a quote from an article, indicated his was one of the worst pathologies they had seen. He had about 40% loss of dopamine neurons. This is what she wrote actually in an article 2016 called The Terrorist Inside My Husband's Brain. She Mm. goes on in that quote to say, the massive proliferation of Lewy bodies throughout his brain had done so much damage to neurons and neurotransmitters that in effect, you could say he had chemical warfare in his brain. Mm. In the documentary, there was another expert who had looked at all of his charts and his medical records. And this expert commented that he was surprised Robin could walk or move at all. In fact, here's the quote. I actually have it. People who have great intellect or wit will often tolerate degenerative diseases or have a little more neuroplasticity than others would have. So what they speculate is only because Robin was such a genius, was so mm-hmm. quick, was so witty that he was actually able to function Longer. as well as he did through all of these terrible things that were happening to his body. Yeah. So we've listed so many of the the symptoms. I don't want to go through all of those again, but Susan was convinced, excuse me, that he was having not just all of those physical symptoms, but also some of those cognitive things like the paranoia, the delusions Mm -hmm. and the hallucinations. Well, you said a second ago that it just, it up to 40% of his dopamine responses were gone. And dopamine is what makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. So 40% of it is just, it's just vanished, which would mean that 
that he was in, almost incapable of feeling that happiness. Almost right. It's halfway. it's a physical thing. It's yeah. yeah. And it, it did talk about the fact that it's very common for people who are suffering with LBD not to admit if they're having hallucinations or something like that, mm -hmm. because I'm sure they don't want other people to to know. Like they, they might be questioning themselves, what is happening to me? And they may not want to admit, but that's pretty common. Another article mentioned that quote, an aggressive and incurable brain disorder that Lewy body disease, excuse me, is an aggressive and incurable brain disorder that has an associated risk of suicide. So it has been connected to that because of how devastating it can be to a person mentally and physically. Mm -hmm. So very, very serious disease. When Susan found out, she spoke of being so shocked, but yet she was also relieved because she finally understood what had really happened. Robin? Yes. And and so since Robin's death, she has made it her mission to talk about LBD and to tell Robin's story. Her quote was, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't tell this story. I had no idea the journey I was about to begin, but I had to go there. And so some of the things that she's done, this is not all inclusive, but just to, to offer a few things. She's done a number of talks and interviews. She served on the board of the American Brain Foundation. She helped to establish the Lewy Body Dementia Fund and its $3 million research grant award that is aimed aimed at finding an accurate biomarker. And mm. she has also contributed to the documentaries Robin's Wish, which I watched, and also Spark, Robin Williams and his battle with Louis body dementia. I was not able to watch the second one. Mm. So one important motivation behind her wanting to do all this work was simply that she wanted to really clarify what had happened to yeah. Robin. Susan and a bunch of these friends who, who spoke in the interviews talked about how everybody jumped to the erroneous assumption that that it was related to depression. Just simply or, depression. Right, or relapse. But they felt it's important for people to understand that there was this disease. This was something that was happening happening to him and it was terrifying him and it was bigger than these assumptions people were making. And Susan said, quote, Robin wasn't crazy. That was one of his biggest fears, yeah. but he thought he was going crazy because of what was happening to him or he, he worried that he was. Yeah. A second reason behind her going on this mission to raise awareness and funds regarding LBD is because it's not that well-known a disease, yet it's devastating and ultimately fatal if you get it. And so it seemed like an important disease to, to, to focus on, to bring awareness and to try to treat, you know, find something that could help with this. Try to bring good out of this tragedy. Yeah. In fact, as we've said now several times, being misdiagnosed when you have LBD is incredibly common. Mm -hmm. And because it overlaps with symptoms from other diseases, it can it can really confuse things for the patients and their families. Susan clarified that when she wrote the editorial, The Terrorist Inside My Husband's Brain, at that time, she said, I, I don't think it would really matter if, if we'd known, you know, there was no cure anyway, not that big a deal. But now she has decided that it would matter because had they known exactly what it was, had they had an accurate diagnosis, she said, we could have sought specialized care. 
Yeah. And they also would have known what to expect. They would have known some of the things that were coming and they could have tried to deal with them more effectively. You know, there were so many reasons that an accurate diagnosis could have helped the doctors treat him. It could have helped the caregivers because she said as a caregiver, you know, here's this person she loves having all these things happening to them and she doesn't know what to do. It was, it was, you know, incredibly concerning. And on top of that, she said for Robin himself to have known would it would have given him peace because yes. it, all these things were happening to him he had no idea why at least it would have given him peace that was mm-hmm. her word and she could have always pointed back to well remember this is this is a symptom of this disease and it could have reassured him like you said give him peace about oh now now I know why this is happening right sometimes you just want to be able to take action you just want mm-hmm. to feel like okay clarity about what it is and here's what we're going to do and here's what we're going to try because because we know what we're facing versus just wondering what is happening to me and being afraid that your biggest fear is coming true. Right. Yeah. So this was the final thought that I I figured I would share because it touched me. Mm -hmm. In the documentary, Robin's Wish, the director I've mentioned a few different times now, Sean Levy from Night at the Museum, he was also a friend of Robin's. And he commented that for years, Robin, of course, passed in 2014. And he said for several years, not a single person who had worked on that movie had ever said, he never heard any word get out about how Robin was struggling, even though they'd all seen it. Mm. And he was so proud of that. Like he just felt so proud of the way that they'd all wrapped around their friend and and loved on him and nobody had talked about it. And he said, and then all this, you know, this information came out about LBD and he stopped and he went, whoa, he's like, "It, it shouldn't be some dark secret. People Mm -hmm. should talk about it Mm -hmm. because it's a disease like cancer. Mm -hmm. And so he said he, he talked on the documentary himself because he said, it's not a topic that should be treated as those there's shame or secrecy attached to it. There should be no stigma. And he wanted to come out and talk about it. Mm. And so I thought that was a really way to honor Robin's legacy. Exactly. Exactly. Armchair psychologist. So Ashley, kind of a sad. I mean, it is. It yeah, is. it's a little bit of a, a dark episode, but I felt like it was so important, so important to bring out the truth because I didn't know this. It's sure. 2023 now, yeah, and it's been nine years almost since he passed, and I'm sure I'm sure it was in the news and in the media, but I totally missed it. Yeah. I did not know. I didn't know anything about this, and so I thought I would just ask you for the armchair here. What are some of your thoughts? I think that anytime somebody gives so much of themselves to us at the, well, we didn't know he was struggling, but why should we? You know, we had this one-way friendship, but it sounds like he desired that two-way friendship. He thought of us, the collective, his public, as his friend, as kind as he was to everyone. And it sounds like the greatest service we can do to our friend Robin is to tell the truth about what happened to him so that people will not believe the misinformation and to honor his legacy in this way and to say, we we loved you 
we loved the entertainment that you gave us and the way we're going to thank you for that entertainment is to continue to tell the truth about what happened to you and hope that by telling that the next person who may, I hope they don't, but who may get diagnosed with this will have an answer, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I always have an advantage, right? Because because I'm the one who who's had a chance to kind of think through the episode and you, you just have to answer off the top of your head. And so as I was thinking about my thoughts and trying to connect it to the theme, I thought about the quote from Helen Keller, mm-hmm. abandon the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. And I think what struck me is what if you don't know the bend is there? How do you make the turn? How do you right. navigate the turn if you're if you can't see the road right. or if you can't see the bend? And I feel like that's where Robin was. And it's just, it's so sad to me that this brilliant man, this comic genius, this wonderful actor who cares so much for people is dealing with all this with no idea why yeah. or where he's headed. How is it, how how do you navigate well when you when you don't understand things? Right. I it's think. like to go back to his cycling, you can almost if you want to visualize it, if you want to visualize him cycling on a road and this bend is coming up and it's a foggy day and he can't see it and he's just going on because he thinks the road goes straight but it actually just turns and he just doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know. He's now on no road. He's off road. He doesn't know how to get back on it. Yeah. Well, I am happy about the efforts that are being made to bring awareness mm-hmm. to this disease, LBD. I feel like it's a great way to honor Robin. I think you've already said this, but to come back to your point, to honor his legacy, that there'll be more awareness, there'll be more funding, there'll be more research, there'll be more help out there for people. And I think Robin would love that because mm-hmm. he cared so deeply about other people that I think that that I think that's something that would make him smile. Yeah, I, I think he would be happy for the next person to make that turn. Well, so a huge cheers to Robin Williams. Yes. Thank you for your humor and your joy and comedic genius. A lifetime of giving. Cheers. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.